All right. So if you uh, kind of aware of what's going on, uh, the pa- first of all, if you didn't know, the pastor is with the rest of the staff. He's on a staff retreat and they're planning and doing those kind of things. And so he asked me to step in. We've kind of been working close together of late, developing this podcast that we were talking about. And he's been helping me with my uh, my, my doctoral studies. And so he allowed me the opportunity to do this. And I'm excited for it because usually I teach the little kids and they're not much interested in, you know, the things of culture and first Peter and those kind of things. It just kind of goes beyond them. They like cookies and boats and animals and stories. And I love doing it, but I like being with the adults every once in a while. So uh, what I want to ask you first is, and this is the part where maybe you jump in, you might want to remember to unmute uh, your, your mics if you have a, something to add, but what do we know about the author of this book? We're, we're, and we're looking at 1 Peter, specifically 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 through 25. So what do we know about the author of 1 Peter? This is an easy one, by the way. Nod your head if you think it was written by Peter. <laughs> All right, there we are. I, there we are. I know. I I'll understand. Take that first base. And uh, yes, it was written by Peter the Apostle. It was. And it was nice of him to actually put that right up front. Now, what do we know about Peter? He was what? Quick-tempered. He was quick-tempered. Uh, he was impulsive for sure. What else do we know about him? If, if someone were to ask you on the street, hey, what do you know about this Peter guy? What do you think you would lead with? He was the one who said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, and that's because the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. Peter wrote the book of First Peter, possibly Second Peter. We, we, we think that's the case. Uh, what we want to do right now is I want to ask a question and this is based upon what the pastor is going to be talking about Sunday morning. Uh, it asks the question, how do we model godly lives in a pagan culture and what difference does it make? I'm not asking you to answer that. I'm just saying that's kind of what we're going to be looking at uh, as we go through this passage. We're going to look at verse by verse here in a minute. Now, I don't know how y'all go about studying the Bible, so I want to kind of give you a little bit of things that help me out. Um, one of the things I like to do is when I read a passage, I like to read it multiple times and in multiple translations. That helps me see what different translators had going in their mind when they were reading something and was trying to figure out what does this word mean? What, what was the intent of the author here? I also like to read as much as I can the whole chapter many times and even the whole book, like first Peter, that's only like five chapters. That's an easy book to read from start to finish several times. And you see the overall context. And when you do that, you're able to dive into a specific passage and see how that fits into the whole. That way, what that allows us to do is not take a verse out of context and apply it just however we want to. And that is so important because that's how we see so many bad teachings uh, when someone just takes part of a verse and makes a whole theology about that. So what I'm hoping to do with this deep dive into this passage is that by the time we're done, we will be better able to receive and assimilate the sermon that the pastor is going to give us on Sunday morning. 
Now, I want to talk real quick because something that the pastor is going to bring up Sunday morning, and I'm not going to just pretty much read his outline. I'm going to hit on like a couple of things that he's doing. Then I want to hit verse by verse and just see what the passages tell us. But one of the things he's going to ask is how are Christians supposed to relate to the culture and to the world? And he pretty much offers us a couple of options. Uh, We can either have that all in Christian jihad kind of thing where the Christians go on the attack. uh, And we have another option where the Christian pretty much just completely withdraws. They they decide, you know what, we're not going to be a part of this culture anymore. We're going to step out. And we're going to kind of do our own thing, form our own communities. And we can all, if we think hard enough, think about instances where both of these things have gone terribly wrong. Because if we have like an all-in militant kind of attitude where we're at war with the culture around us, um, the downside of that is like, first of all, nobody's going to like us. Right. And that's not necessarily the the worst thing, because if we're trying to please man instead of trying to please God, well, then our mindset is wrong and nothing good is going to come out of that. But at the same time, if we're called to represent the Christ who loved his people so much that he gave his life for them, then maybe we should also mirror that. And the only way to mirror that is to be part of the culture that he's placed us in. if we look at the flip side of that and we try to completely withdraw, well, how can we be salt and light to the earth if we're not even on the earth to be seen by anybody to be salt and light for? Does that make sense? Nod your head, yes, up and down, something like that. Just let me know we're still all out there. The uh, So the question then, if – nice, I see you, William's iPhone. So the uh, the thing here is – is there a better, more biblical way? And yes, the answer to that is yes. And so this is where we want to pick up in verse 11 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read from the passage here, uh, talk a little bit of, uh, about each verse. And on occasion, I'm even going to look at text side by side with other translations just to see. Now, if you have a comment to say that they're unmute your mic, jump in. Ask your question, maybe mute yourself back just so we don't keep having this feedback that we kind of had a minute ago. I wish we had a way that we could all be unmuted uh, so we can have a more engaging discussion, but I think that's going to create some technical difficulties. So here we go. I'm in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, and it begins, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, it strikes me that this passage immediately seems to be a, a series of verses about contrast. We talk about sojourners and exiles. And what we see going on here is that and we, we, first, we want to try to figure out who these sojourners and exiles are. And we, I think we find that at the beginning of 1 Peter when uh, Peter is talking about who he's writing this, this letter to. We see that there were apparently a group of people that either fled persecution 
and Peter was writing to them, or there was a group of people who willingly exiled themselves or dispersed themselves out for the spreading of the gospel, possibly a combination of both. And so here we have Peter calling them sojourners and exiles. If I compare this text with other translations, he talks about aliens and strangers. Maybe that's something that we're a little bit more familiar with in our culture when we talk about aliens and strangers. Uh, And he tells them to abstain from fleshly lust. Another translation says abstain from sinful desire, something that not only apparently they struggled with, but let's face it, I don't think I'm wrong in saying that that's something that we all struggle with too. It's, I mean, and sometimes we might think it's a little thing. Sometimes we know in our hearts that, wow, this is just, this is evil. Uh, and here Peter is saying, beloved, I urge you, don't do this. Abstain from these uh, passions that wage war against your soul. And so uh, I'm looking at verse 12 now. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, normally what I would want to do is just take a poll and ask, what do your different translations uh, say? Because I know that we're all kind of probably reading from a, a different translation. I'm primarily reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, but I also have in front of me the New American Standard, the New International Version, and a few others. By the way, and this is for free, this is for free, if you go to netbible.org, this is a fairly recent translation that I'm kind of excited about uh, because it actually has footnotes and stuff that will show you why certain things were translated the way they were. They give some insight into what else. It it actually takes a deeper dive into the passage itself. uh, And it shows all these different ways that this might possibly be translated and why scholars might lean one way or another. If that's your thing, I love stuff like that. Uh, Maybe I messed up like that, but that's kind of who I am. And so, When I look at this passage, it says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. The call is for us, and you see this in the New International Version, to live our our lives among the pagans that though they accuse us of doing wrong, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Well, then that might bring up the question, what does it mean on the day that he visits us, or some translations might say the day of visitation. Uh, There's another translation, the new revised standard version says when he comes to judge. And I think that kind of lands on it because they were living in a society in a day where they were expecting Jesus to come back at any time. All right. And and we've probably all seen those those sidewalk prophets and preachers and stuff with the signs and the bullhorns that say the end is near and uh, trying to tell us to flee from the coming wrath and all those kind of things. But this is nothing new. That's been going on for hundreds and thousands of years. But we even see here in the time that Peter is writing this, there was an expectation that Jesus was going to come back and he was going to come back soon. And so he's telling telling them, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable uh, so that when people do 
uh, speak against you, as evildoers might do, they're going to see your good deeds and they're going to glorify God on that day of visitation. So when they speak against you, that little quote right there can be taken as an assumption, right? People are going to speak bad against us. Uh, and it's happening more and more. We live in a society now that is becoming more and more anti-Christian. But when I was growing up as a child, I remember uh, my teacher would read the Bible to us in class, which now surprises me because I think this was after the uh, the, the Supreme Court said, no, you, you can't do that. You can't do that. I think that was about 1965. I was in school, grade school, about mid early 70s. And my, my teacher read the Bible to us. Oh, my gosh, if you tried to do that today, oh, the wailing and gnashing of teeth it, it is terrible because we live in a society that just no longer uh, respects Christianity. And I, and I can almost take it back to a time during maybe the mid-90s. You might remember a lot of the televangelist uh, scandals that were just going on at the time. And all of a sudden, it seems to be to me prior to that, People might not have believed what the pastors were saying, but there was still at least a, a healthy reverence for uh, the clergy and the church. That's not so much the case now. We've gotten a lot of black eyes out there. A lot of it's uh, well-deserved. A lot of it's self-inflicted. Um, but the church is taking a beating. And those, the people who are part of it, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, much like Peter here. I don't think it's going to get much better. Because we aren't called to live in a society of safety. Um, matter of fact, it seems that the church thrives the most when it's under pressure. And uh, the best we can do is, you know, prepare ourselves to be found faithful to do the work of Christ, even during those times of uh, uh, trouble, during those times of persecution. Uh, so when we read this passage again at the end of verse 12, so that they may, may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, the ultimate outcome of this is that God might be glorified as the wicked observe and find no fault in the lives of God's people. Now, if some are drawn to Christ in the process, that would be awesome. That would be great. Now, I will ask you this, and this, might, and this might be one of those raise your hand kind of questions because I'm genuinely curious. And as you raise your hand with one hand, maybe you unmute yourself with the other. Uh, this is what I'm going to ask. When it says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, does that sound familiar at all to you? Is it possible Jesus himself might have said something similar to that? Does this sound familiar? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And that's Matthew 5, 16. You can see Peter pretty much mirroring the words that Jesus himself used to tell us that not only are we supposed to keep our conduct honorable, we're supposed to live our lives in such a way so that society can take a look at us and hold us blameless and glorify God in the process. Uh, I remember when I was doing a, a youth lesson, uh, probably about maybe eight years ago, I did it based on a book called The Fifth Gospel. 
And it's a fascinating book. It's written by Bobby Conway. And he talks about this idea that we are the fifth gospel because we have, let's face it, we know we have Matthew, we have Mark, we have Luke, we have John. Uh, but there are going to be people out there who will have never read those gospels, who've never even opened a Bible. And the idea is that at some point we ourselves become the testimony of the gospel. People are observing our lives. People see us uh, and they judge Christianity based on how they see the Christians acting. And that takes me to another study that I did based on a book called Unchristian. I highly recommend it. Uh, and it by David Kinnaman. And it was based on a series of Barna uh, surveys where they asked uh, young people, what are your hangups against Christianity? What are your problems? And, and, to a, and they would all kind of list their things. Well, they're hypocrites. They, they don't have a, uh, they're, they're not in touch with the culture. Uh, they're too literal. They're too negative. They're all, all this kind of stuff that talks about why they themselves choose not to be Christian. And the biggest reason that most of them choose not to be Christian, they'll tell you, is because of Christians. And I can kind of get that. I grew up in the church. I grew up, there's never been a moment in my life where I didn't know God or Jesus, or at least who they were. Uh, but for someone, I'm wondering if I had grown up outside of the church, would I be one of these skeptics? Would I be one of these people who looked at the church and said, they have nothing to offer me because they're no different than I am. The only difference between them and me is that they get up early on Sunday morning. Well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And so, and, that, and that's one of the things that's also brought up in the unchristian book. And so I recommend it. It is a fascinating and scary read. I want to jump to verse 13 and 14. I promise you we are going to go through these other verses much faster than we have these. Uh, so verse 13, it says, Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Uh, some of your translations might open up with submit yourselves. Now, immediately, a lot of people read that, and all of a sudden, they kind of get on the defensive because, well, we're not, we don't live in a submissive society anymore. Um, that becomes kind of a, a, a red flag. It's certainly a, a, a trigger kind of word where people just don't want to submit because to submit means that someone else is in charge and I'm not. But I think the real difference comes is in who we're submitting ourselves to. Uh, and in this case, uh, when the, the scripture says, be subject, or let me read a different translation, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. And that is why we want to submit. And so as I, I read this, I'm wondering if this verse brings to mind another teaching of Jesus, because here he is talking about submitting to human institutions, whether they be kings, emperors, governments, that kind of thing. Can we think of a passage that Jesus might have himself might have talked about uh, in this regard? When asked about taxes, he said, render, render under Caesar what is Caesar's, render unto God what is God's. Right. 
And so even then we see Jesus uh, talking about submitting to the authorities that God himself has put before us. And so as we uh, move ahead, we want to kind of pick this thing up a little bit. Uh, the role of the, the king and the governor, as far as in God's uh, mind, seems to be to provide a means of maintaining social order. Now, granted, a lot of kings did that poorly. Some were just anti-God altogether and just did some terrible, terrible things, which always raises the question, what is the role of the Christian in such instances? And let's face it. Uh, I mean, it's hard to find a noble leader, a noble godlike leader almost anywhere these days, uh, especially in our politically charged environment now. It's hard. It seems like we can find a way to argue about anything. We can find a reason to speak out viciously against our leaders, which is not what we are called to do. Uh, not by any means. We are called to pray for our leaders, uh, but we still have a social responsibility to be changed, be a gospel change, a Christian change within our society, but to do so with honor, integrity, and respect, because in so doing, people are going to look at us, and it gets back to verse 12, uh, in so doing, people might look at us and see, you know what, I may not like them, but at least the worst thing I can say about them is that I don't like the fact that they're Christians. And so uh, I want to jump down to verse 15 real quick. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. I don't know about you, but I started to train myself. Anytime I read in the Bible certain key words, I, I straighten up, I get my pen out, I start marking things. Uh, if I ever read a verse that begins with, I write these things to you so that, well, I'm paying attention because I know I'm about to get a good summary of what everything else is saying. This is another thing that I pay attention to. And it's at the verse, beginning of verse 15, for this is the will of God. I've had a lot of students over the years come to me and ask, how do I know the will of God for my life? Well, in some places, it's kind of easy. It says it right there. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? I mean, is that, it doesn't seem like it's optional to me. It doesn't seem like uh, that. Eh, maybe this is a, a suggestion of God, but I'm, you know, I want to take a poll. I want to kind of look around, maybe see what other people are doing. I don't get the indication, and if you ever see me point like that, it's because I have another laptop over here with my my scriptures up. Uh, this is exactly what it says. This is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Uh, it almost reminds me of the passage that if you love your enemy, it's like heaping hot coals on their head. They don't know what to do with that. They don't know what to do with that. So people respond in different ways. Uh, and then we're right back at verse 12 again. All right, I promised you we were going to uh, pick this thing up, so we're going to uh, move forward. Uh, 
Um, in verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Well, this is a clear set of instructions right here that probably explains to us how we can do the will of God. Uh, live as people who are free. All right. But, and this is important, there are constraints to that freedom because we're not to use our freedom to do just anything we want to. Now, I don't know if any of you are like big Spider-Man fans. I'm not saying I am, but if I said I wasn't, I would be a big liar. Out of those movies and out of the comic books before that, uh, there was this great philosopher named Uncle Ben. And he had this line that said, with great power comes great responsibility. It's not much different here. Don't use your freedom as a cover up from evil. It's almost as if he's saying with great freedom comes great responsibility. Uh, living as servants of God. So we jump down to verse 17. And these, it's, it's like a series of four imperatives, but it's almost as if you have the first one. That's kind of the overarching thing that says, this is what we ultimately want you to do. To do that, here are three more imperatives. And so it says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. If I look at a different translation, the New International Version, it says show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, here's the thing. If you do those last three and you put all your effort into doing those last three, well, doesn't the first one take care of itself? That's kind of what's going on here. So if you love the brotherhood, if you fear God, if you honor the emperor, then you're going to honor everyone. So we move on to verse 18. Now, this is where things can kind of be a little bit maybe contentious because depending upon your translation, it might start off with servants. It might start off with the word slaves. Uh, this is one of those sections where one's interpretation of this passage might be affected of their worldview and what lenses they might be wearing when they read this passage, because, you know, when we think of slaves, that's a kind of a charged thing in our society. Uh, but it would have been somewhat different back in the day 2000 years ago in Rome, because it's, it's a different kind of slavery. Odds are it's a different kind of slavery because they had slavery a lot of times where people would willingly sell themselves into slavery in order to pay off a debt. Uh, they might be captured or something. Sometimes uh, these these servants were household servants where they might be uh, physicians, tutors, teachers, uh, those kind of things, that doesn't take away the possibility that they were treated bad. Some of them probably were, but others were treated like family. And we kind of see that social dynamic with a wide spectrum of how they were treated. Um, but what Peter is wanting to do here is he's actually putting in place, um, he's putting in place this idea of how people in different roles in society are to behave in relation to one another. And so one of the things we see here, is, and, and let me back up a minute, because people have often asked, you know, this whole slavery thing, why didn't Peter and Paul just actually write against this? 
why didn't they, I mean, they were, you know, people of power. Why couldn't they do something about that? Well, they really weren't. Matter of fact, they both ended up dying because they went up against Rome uh, with their revolutionary Christian ideas. They weren't really in a position where they could uh, evoke that much social change except from within. And that's where we see these writings come into play a lot of times is that we see Peter and Paul, when they write on this topic, trying to make change from within. So as you have uh, Christian servants, Christian slaves, and Christian masters and slaveholders and, and masters of the house, uh, as one became a Christian, as another one became a Christian, their relationship change from being master and servant to being brothers and fellow Christian. And this is how they expected them to lead their lives in hopes that they would evoke change from within. And I, I, I was reading this one thing, uh, and, I, and I found it to be an interesting statement. The spiritual solution to the sad state of slavery within the Greco-Roman Empire, it wasn't violent overthrow but the construction of an alternative society, the Church of Jesus Christ, which would ultimately triumph. Because really, at the end of the day, a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, the only thing that's going to matter is what did we do with Jesus? What did we do with him? How did we respond to him? Uh, because all of a sudden, all of our socioeconomic structures are going to be gone. Now, that's not saying we don't, that's not to say we don't do anything, because our call as Christians is to do something, uh, to make change, but to do so with good conduct and respect and uh, the love of Christ. Uh, and we can expect persecution along the way, because that's one of the main themes of this whole book of First Peter. How do we live our lives? in a, a society of persecution. Now, what we don't know during this time of persecution that these uh, believers were going through that, that Peter was writing to, we don't know if they were undergoing the great Christian uh, persecutions led by the, uh, the Caesar or Emperor Nero at the time or not. It might simply be that they were facing uh, a higher level of persecution than maybe we as Christians face now. Uh, especially in this society that doesn't want anything to do with Christianity uh, and in a, in a society that is just way too eager to just speak out against us. And uh, it, it might be somewhere between full-on persecution and what we're experiencing now. Uh, but I think what we need to do is prepare ourselves for the worst and know that we're not the first to go through this. And matter of fact, Peter gets to the point where he says, not only are we not the first to go through this, not only is the audience that he's speaking to the first to go through this, Jesus went through this. And this is, to me, probably one of the best part of the whole passage uh, when he talks about um, how Jesus himself suffered. I'm in verse 20 now. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? The idea there is, I mean, if, if you did something bad and you get punished for it, right, you know, that's what happens. You get punished. There's consequences for your actions. Uh, but he says, but if you do good and you suffer for it and then you endure, 
This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Another translation says you have God's approval. Another translation says you find favor with God. I don't know about you. I want all of those things. I want to find favor with God. Uh, I want to endure through suffering so I can be a witness to those around me uh, and God get glory for it. He says, for to this you have been called, verse 21, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow his steps. There's not a single person out there that can say, man, God, you just don't understand what I'm going through. Not a single one of us can say that because Jesus says, all right, try me. Because, I mean, we know what Jesus did. As a matter of fact, Peter is about to go through it. He's not only going to tell us what Jesus did for us, he's going to quote a passage of scripture that was probably written maybe 600 years before Jesus was even born. It was one of these messianic prophecies from Isaiah 53, and he's going to, these next three verses, he's going to be all in that. Uh, And so he says this, he said, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. It gets back to the idea, hey, if 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 we're punished, if we're persecuted for doing something good, uh, and we endure through it, people will take notice of that because that's exactly what Jesus went through. He committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Uh, In verse 24, it picks up, he himself, and this is a quote directly from Isaiah 53, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. It is a reminder to the people that, yes, you might be going through suffering, but the one who died for you suffered so much more. It's almost as if he is saying, you know what? For you to suffer is really the least you could do for the one who suffered so much for you. And we're going to close out uh, with verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So I want to close out with a a quote that I found uh, uh, last week, and and then we'll, uh, unless you have any questions, we'll we'll call it. Or if you just want to keep on going, I know some of y'all are like, whoa, let's, let's not do that. So 1 Peter, this is the quote, 1 Peter is designed to inculcate that our lives are not at the mercy of ruthless forces outside our control and that the beneficent power called God has entered our human experience of suffering and distress and triumph. We're not at the the mercy of ruthless forces outside our control. We are under the power of God who has entered our human experience of suffering and distress, and he is triumphed. That's what we get to look forward to. It might not all be that great right now. And for right now, I mean, and I got to say, this might be every day that we've had from now on, it might be that our best day was yesterday. Because the way this whole thing with uh, persecution in our society, I think it's going to get worse. Um, 
I don't want to, I certainly don't want to do anything to make you think, oh, well, you know what, I'm checking out that. I don't want to be part of this Christian thing. Uh, because again, like I said earlier, 100 years from now, the only thing that's going to matter is how we responded to Christ. And, uh, and sometimes that's the only thing that keeps me going. Sometimes that's the only thing that helps me realize that what I'm going through right now, you know what, this isn't the thing that's going to define me because, you know, not too long from now, it's not going to matter that much anyway. Only thing that's going to matter is how I responded to Christ. Uh, and conversely, how I re shared that with the people that were around me. 